Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known stories behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your wet bandits of banality, your filthy animals of facts, your les incompetents of intel. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're going to talk about a Christmas movie that's so good that I almost forgot it's a Christmas movie. In fact, it's really one of the few entries in the Christmas media canon that really stands up all year round. I would just have to guess that the violence keeps it timeless. (laughs) We're talking about Home Alone, a holiday masterpiece from the mind of John Hughes, which went on to become the biggest live action comedy for over 20 years. The Hangover 2 broke the streak in 2011. What can you say about this movie? It's a live action cartoon. Simple premise, flawlessly executed with expert precision by young director Chris Columbus. Brilliant performances by Catherine O'Hara, Joe Pesci, and Daniel Stern. And it's the movie that made Macaulay Culkin the biggest child star of all time. Hoggle, what do you think of this? Uh, No notes. Yeah? Love to hear that. I watched this movie a ton when I was a kid, and then I sort of fell off. Like, I hadn't revisited it a bunch. You sort of fell off when you became of age when the booby traps actually just seemed harmful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I became I became of age when I started identifying more with Joe Pesci and <laughs> Yeah, it was a long bit, recurring bit. My family did do that when he's like picking himself up off the sidewalk and he's like, just like doing that around the house. Who wins the best fake swearing competition? The dad from mm. A Christmas Story or Joe Pesci in uh, Home Alone? Oh, it's definitely Darren McAvin. Just because okay. he has the, the Joe range. Is a, yeah, the symphonic Joe range. Is, yeah, Joe's is... Joseph's is a kind of a uh, and not, you know funny from a from a trained singer, but his is kind of in the one <laughs> register. Whereas that's true. Darren McGavin comes back with a ah, it's a <laughs> uh, gonna be my new one. I have to bring back every episode. <laughs> the Darren McGavin <laughs> fake swearing. Yeah, it's it's great. The whole Chris Columbus John Hughes era of like hegemony. 
<laughs> Some of it is hit or miss for me. Can be a little cloying. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, man, this, this movie's great. It's adorable. It's so so violent. <laughs> did you watch it all year round, or was it just did it just come out at Christmas? Uh, no, it was a year round watch for me. me I too. definitely uh, this one, and I think I did watch the second one. Uh, it's like okay. I also remember when the third one came out. Yeah, and I remember being really disappointed. I remember the kid who starred in that, Alex D. Linz. Why do I remember that kid's name? I can't <laughs> believe you just pulled that kid's name. Wow. Well, from the feud with a comedy legend that helped set this production in motion, to the insanity of Macaulay Culkin's literal rags-to-riches story, to the time Joe Pesci bit the kid's finger so hard he drew blood, to the role Chris Farley very nearly played, and the reason why John Candy was pissed at the production, plus all the ways they pulled off those brutal booby traps, and what a doctor says those traps would do to you in real life, here's everything you didn't know about Home Alone. Well, to start, we basically have John Hughes' travel anxiety to thank for Home Alone. If you're listening to the show, chances are you're well familiar with John Hughes' work. He's the king of 80s heartfelt comedies, having written and directed The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck, and Weird Science. And I also didn't realize just how many huge scripts he wrote that he didn't direct, like all of the 80s vacation movies, Pretty in Pink, Beethoven... Dennis the Menace, the live-action, 101 Dalmatians, so many great scripts. He really presided over, I'd say, two distinct cinematic arenas. The touching coming-of-age films, and then the general movie mayhem comedies. I'd say that Pretty in Pink, Breakfast Club is the former, Beethoven, Vacation Movies, and Home Alone is probably more of the latter. Now, in the summer of 1989, John was taking some well-deserved time off from his busy Hollywood life to make a trip to Paris with his family, and that's when inspiration struck. Talking to Time Magazine in 1990, he explained, I was going away on vacation and making a list of everything I didn't want to forget. And then I thought, well, I better not forget my kids. (laughs) Then I thought, what if I left my 10-year-old son at home? What would he do? And he wrote this idea down in his notebook, dated August 8th, 1989, a day that would live in infamy for comedy fans everywhere. And he revisited it two weeks later when his family returned home from their trip. And he wrote the first draft in just nine days, nine days to write Home Alone. There's a fantastic oral history on Home Alone compiled by Chicago Magazine in 2015, in which Hugh's son James gives a little more detail on the really frenzied genesis of this script. Apparently, John wrote the last 44 pages, or the entire last act of the screenplay, in just eight hours! James says in this oral history, before finishing, he expressed concerns in the marginalia of his journal that he was working too slowly. John Hughes was fast. He apparently wrote Ferris Bueller in just a week. You know, he co-wrote uh, Beethoven under the pseudonym of Edmund Dantes, the protagonist of The Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> no, why? <laughs> WGA stuff, I would, uh, I would assume. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. nuts the amount of stuff I was watching this Netflix documentary movies that made us and they did an episode mm-hmm. on Home Alone and some of the people that worked with him said that he was just like a comedy machine he would just write scripts in, a, in full scripts in a weekend I mean, I mean there's a whole section of his Wikipedia page it's just unproduced scripts and just it's this, it's this list that's longer than many people's full you know realized works it's really insane Now, some of the plot elements of Home Alone, uh, specifically relating to this resourceful little kid, was pulled from a movie that Hughes had just completed in earlier 1989 called Uncle Buck, 
which was released, I think, about a week after Hughes first jotted down the initial logline for Home Alone in his notebook. And Uncle Buck stars two major figures in Home Alone, John Candy as the titular Uncle Buck, and most crucially, Macaulay Culkin. John Candy, obviously the star of Uncle Buck, but watching Culkin perform was where Hughes got to toying with the idea of doing a movie where a little boy was the lead. And he borrowed elements from Uncle Buck, including, obviously, Culkin himself. But there's a scene in Uncle Buck where Culkin's character, uh, I think he interrogates a potential babysitter through a mail slot. And in Home Alone, Culkin does something similar with Daniel Stern through the pet door. And a BB gun's involved. We'll get to that later. (laughs) Uh, There are some out there, or at least... One dude who thinks that there is another movie that had an influence on the creation of Home Alone. After the film was a runaway blockbuster success after its release in 1990, the French filmmaker René Menzor alleged that John Hughes had ripped off his movie 3615 Code Perry Noel, also known as Deadly Games, Dial Code Santa Claus, Game Over, and Hide and Freak. Lots of English language titles for this, I guess. Uh, It's a 1989 thriller about a boy left home alone on Christmas Eve who defends his home from an intruder with toys and home appliances. Have you seen this? It seems like up your alley. I haven't. But it's funny. It has, you know, there's similarities to the Chris Columbus uh, Gremlins. (laughs) You know, there's like improvised improvised toy weapon scenes and home appliance scenes all over uh, Gremlins. Also a Christmas movie. You know? Oh, good. Wow. You know what? I never yeah. thought of all that. Well, this French filmmaker, René Manzor, uh, apparently threatened legal action, but I don't think anything ever came of it. On a similar note, there are many, including Home Alone director Chris Columbus, who see similarities between Home Alone and the end of the 2012 <laughs> James Bond film Skyfall, in which James Bond defends his childhood home from bad guys. And somebody EW even asked him about it, too, and Chris Columbus was like, yeah, thanks for bringing that up, because I felt that, too, when I saw that, and nobody else has ever mentioned that to me, but now I feel a lot better. In addition to John Hughes' travel anxiety, another crucial component to the genesis of the movie is director Chris Columbus's hatred of Chevy Chase. Columbus had first made his name as a screenwriter, writing the aforementioned Gremlins, The Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes, and another popular entry in the traumatic millennial kids movie canon, Little Nemo, Adventures in Slumberland. Columbus had only directed two movies, Adventures in Babysitting and Heartbreak Hotel, when he got the invitation to direct one of Hughes' scripts, Christmas Vacation. The chance to direct the new installment of the beloved National Lampoon franchise was a big deal, but unfortunately, it came with some strings attached by the name of Chevy Chase, (laughs) who just, nobody has a kind word to say about Chevy. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think the most recent, maybe the most recent, I don't know, Bill Harmon. It's hard to keep uh, track. Yeah, Dan Harmon from Community was the last person he had a feud with. What's the last um, real big thing he's done? Yeah, yeah. And uh, wasn't that when, I think, did I send you that thing about Donald Glover being like, oh, Chevy was super racist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, Columbus and Chevy went out for, uh, you know, the proverbial lunch. And according to Columbus, to be completely honest, Chevy treated me like dirt. Uh, Columbus was a rookie director and Chevy was apparently very open about the fact that he did not trust him on this project and would barely deem to talk to him. Columbus later told Insider, the experience of making the movie was fraught with pain and tension with Chevy Chase, but I needed the job desperately. At the time, I was living with my wife's parents. But ultimately, he decided he couldn't work with Chevy, so he called John Hughes to let him know that he was backing out and explaining his decision. 
In the Chicago Magazine oral history, he said, I called John and said, there's no way I can do this movie. I know I need to work, but I can't do it with this guy. Hughes, to his credit, was very understanding and, you know, knew Chevy was Chevy and was sympathetic to Chris. And apparently, uh, you know, I guess he on some level admired his courage in bailing because uh, about two weeks later, two different scripts arrived at Chris Columbus's parents' in-law's house uh, with a note asking if he wanted to direct either of them. And one of them was the script for Home Alone. Chris Columbus was touched by the gesture, not only because he needed the work, but because he was getting a second chance from a guy who could justifiably be very upset that he bailed on the first movie that he offered him. I thought, wow, this guy is really supporting me when no one else in Hollywood was going to, Columbus said. Talking to Entertainment Weekly for Home Alone's 25th anniversary in 2015, Columbus explained what drew him to the script. Let's remember he got sent two. Right, yes. Uh, He said, I thought there was a really strong emotional context for the film. I've always been fascinated by Christmas, even back when I wrote Gremlins. I set Gremlins, which is a very dark story, against the bright, cheery time of Christmas, and I thought it was a good contrast. Christmas is a time when people are at their happiest or their most emotionally low place in their lives, and I thought that this was a great backdrop for a kid who's left home alone on Christmas. Before we move on from this, should we tell the uh, Bill Murray-Chevy Chase fight backstage at SNL? (laughs) I know it's your favorite. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> I mean, it's just because of the, the the punchline. So Chevy Chase was the big breakout star in the first season of SNL and then left to pursue fabulous riches in Hollywood. And the rest of the cast really kind of felt abandoned. Like they felt like they'd created this family unit and then he just kind of gone off and uh, in sort of very naked, uh, being very nakedly out for self. And they got Bill Murray in to effectively fill his spot. And then a couple years later, Chevy came back to host and no one was really happy to see him come back. But I guess it sort of fell to Bill Murray to sort of express the frustrations on behalf of the cast to Chevy. I think John Belushi put him up to it, actually, too. I think Mm. John Belushi was the one who kind of egged Bill Murray on. And so when Chevy, I think shortly before showtime, they had a fist fight. Chevy Chase and Bill Murray backstage. I think Chevy said that Bill Murray's face looked like something that Neil Armstrong landed on. Yeah, that's a, that's a cheap shot. <laughs> Bill Murray gave one of my favorite insults of all time, just hissing at him as he's being held back by the rest of the cast. Medium talent. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Uh, did you ever hear what Carson said about Chevy? No. Wasn't he, at least some people thought he was going to be up to replace Carson. I can imagine Carson not being down for that, but. Well, Chevy said, uh, he, yes, that is correct. He was uh, supposedly up for Tonight Show and, and uh, Chevy said uh, to New York Magazine, I'd never be tied down for five years interviewing TV personalities. And Carson's re- rejoinder to that was that Chevy couldn't ad lib a fart after a baked bean dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that's a classic i Pretty have heard savage. that i didn't know it was what it was in reference to that's amazing uh fun sidebar <laughs> uh home alone almost didn't even get made because of you know the oldest profession budgets um warner brothers was willing to put up 14 million for the movie which is a good amount but for a comedy i mean i think mm. uh i just have this at hand i think moonstruck cost in that neighborhood around the same time yeah that's a low big budget movie yeah i mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that'll buy you film and craft services 
And share. Uh, yeah, and share. Um, yeah, so Warner Brothers was willing to pony up 14 mil. Production asked for an extra 700 grand. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Warner Brothers was like, no. <laughs> I've seen varying accounts of this. I've seen it go up to like 1.5 million, but still not a lot as far as major Hollywood studios are concerned. Yeah. I mean, that was like some exec's bonus that year. Yeah. That yes. Just didn't yes. Exactly. Take. But everything was already all. Most of production was already in place. They'd hired the actors. They'd hired the crew. They'd booked the locations. They rented out uh, a, a, an unused high school in Illinois to use as a production, obvious. And uh, then Warner Brothers was like, you can't have this extra money. We're pulling the plug. And this is when John Hughes pulled a little classic Hollywood subterfuge. It's like something from one of his movies, kind of. He shot them with a BB gun? <laughs> <laughs> he heated no, he up a locked doorknob? them in the high school library <laughs> yeah. all on Saturday and had them work out their differences. So technically, you're not allowed to show a script to another studio until said movie has been put into turnaround, which is a legal term that means the studio has backed out and the movie doesn't have an owner anymore. So when things at Warner Brothers started looking shaky, Hughes took meetings with his friends at 20th Century Fox and pitched them the movie and somehow arranged, heavy in heavy quotes, for a copy of the script to be left at a location where it would mysteriously be found by Fox reps. Fox chairman Joe Roth later said, okay, if you can get it away from WB, I'll make it. Seemed like a no-brainer. Didn't cost much. I didn't have a Thanksgiving movie. I liked the idea, and I loved the people involved. So the reps from Warner Brothers flew out to where they were shooting in Illinois and went to every room of the production office at this high school and told everyone to pack up and go home. And then one of the other members of production, one of John Hughes' guys, followed this person around and told everyone, don't actually pack up and leave. Uh, this movie is getting made, but you have to pretend that you're sad about it while the Warner Brothers guy is still here. Because we did because, something illegal. <laughs> yeah, because we did something illegal. Fox spent $18 million, so they got their extra money, and then the film grossed nearly $500 million. It made $476 mil. So, boy, someone at Warner Brothers had a bad, bad time after that. <laughs> Highest grossing live action comedy for over 20 years. As we mentioned earlier, John Hughes had just wrapped Uncle Buck with Macaulay Culkin when he started writing Home Alone, so the role of Kevin McAllister was basically created with him in mind. But Hughes very generously deferred to director Chris Columbus and let him make his own creative choices. You know, every director wants to make their own acting discovery. Columbus later said, I think John knew all along he wanted Macaulay in the movie. I thought he was great in Uncle Buck, but I owed it to myself as director to see other child actors. John said, okay, take your time, do what you need to do. And Columbus auditioned more than 100 kids for the part, and he watched about as many audition tapes. Uh, amusingly, one of them was very nearly comedian John Mulaney. <laughs> he said that he was asked to audition for the role of Kevin as a kid, but his parents wouldn't let him do it. Can you? I can actually very easily see him having yeah. Macaulay Culkin's life. Well, he has the bit about Home Alone 2 in his one special. Does he talk about audition, or being asked to audition for Home no, Alone? No, that's oh. what's so funny. This, I'm, this is the first time I'm hearing it. He never oh, wow. mentions, like, and I almost played that child. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, maybe he's still bitter about it. But his parents would not let him do it. Uh, so after all these kids Chris Columbus saw... He finally saw Macaulay, who he says was one of the last, if not the last. And he later said, you immediately knew this was the kid. He's 
a real kid. He doesn't look like one of these Hollywood perfect kids. His ears a little bent. He's got a great voice that's not annoying. It was just charming, and he was really funny. So, as usual, John Hughes was right. Uh, <laughs> as a former clickbaity, feel old yet writer, I have to say I will always love Macaulay Culkin for tweeting on his 40th birthday in August 2020. Hey guys, want to feel old? I'm 40. You're welcome. <laughs> the tweet became the ninth most liked tweet of all time. And Macaulay Culkin also legally changed his middle name to Macaulay Culkin, making his name Macaulay Macaulay Culkin Culkin after holding a vote. <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. After holding a vote through his website to choose a new middle name. Um, yeah, he does seem remarkably well adjusted. He's on the I I I like a lot of people, I watch a red letter media, the film guys on YouTube. My point in bringing them up is that Macaulay Culkin has been on there a lot of times. Like he's been on that. Oh, cool. On that show like panel discussions talking about like low budget movies and everything yeah he looks i mean you know there was definitely a moment when we were all like is macaulay culkin like super on meth but yeah he seems to have landed better yeah. which yeah. is good considering uh <laughs> the rest everything of the yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um Unfortunately, yes, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately for director Chris Columbus, working with Macaulay, or Mac, as everyone insists on calling him, everyone in the know, working with him also meant dealing with his family, who were about as difficult as Chevy Chase. Columbus told The Guardian in 2013, I was much younger, and I was really too naive to think about the family environment as well. We didn't know that much about the family at the beginning, and as we were shooting, we learned a little more. The stories are hair-raising. I was casting a kid who truly had a troubled family life. By many accounts, the Culkins were classic stage parents pushing their kid to the brink after years of struggling financially. Macaulay's father, Kit, was a wannabe actor who worked at a Catholic church, and his mom worked as a telephone operator while they lived in a tiny railroad-style apartment. Kieran Culkin, now famous for his role in Succession, Mac's brother, uh, plays Fuller in Home Alone, famously, uh, told Vanity Fair, It was just a hallway, and there were no separating doors except for the bathroom, which didn't have a lock. They raised seven kids in that apartment. For years, they just kept bringing babies home to this little space. Some of us would go to school. Some of us would not. An early casting director recalled having to give them money out of his own pocket to make sure that Macaulay would be able to afford to get to and from rehearsals. And at some points during these rehearsals, the kid would crawl under the bleachers at the theater to look for change that had fallen out of people's pockets. Dickensian. Oof. The relationship between Macaulay and his dad was always strained. As Macaulay later said, he was just a bad dude, a bad, abusive man. He was a piece of work. There was an incident when the Culkins were young when Kit left home for three weeks, and a babysitter noted that not one of the seven kids ever asked where he was. Uh, according to Kieran, he would later say, you know, things were just better when he wasn't there. Macaulay said that the physical and mental abuse at the hands of his dad began early on and continued to get worse as his acting career took off. And he told Mark Marin that they'd travel for auditions, and he'd say, I'm going around the country locked in a room with a man who didn't like me. And Macaulay chalked it up just to pure jealousy because, as he said, everything that my dad had tried to do in his life, I excelled at before I was 10 years old. And he told this story 
this almost actually on some level makes me feel bad for his dad. One of his dad's last acting roles in an off-Broadway production of King Lear. This is Macaulay talking. He's so into his part, he closes his eyes. And so he's doing a soliloquy and he's getting closer and closer to the edge of the stage. He doesn't notice because he's so into the part because he's blind. And then he spills into the first row and hurts himself. This is opening night. And so that supposedly turned Macaulay's dad off of acting for good. He was so ashamed. So after Home Alone became the highest grossing comedy of all time, Macaulay went on to become the first child actor to earn a million dollar paycheck for his role in the really quite devastating coming of age story, My Girl. And he got a $4.5 million check for Home Alone 2, which was reportedly the biggest payday for a 12-year-old ever, which sounds like it. <laughs> what else is in the running? <laughs> right, yeah, I, I can't even really think of another bigger child star. But still, his father had to keep him in his place. And Macaulay later said, I was making God knows how much money, and Kit was making me sleep on the couch just because he could. Just to let you know who's in charge, and just to let you know if he doesn't want you to sleep in a bed, you're not going to sleep in a bed. And once Macaulay started getting the big bucks after Home Alone, Kit Culkin quit his day job to oversee, heavy air quotes, his son's career alongside Macaulay's mother. And I guess they were never actually married. They took 15% of his earnings, which obviously gave them a vested interest in not only what Macaulay did, but how often he did it. Premier Magazine rated Kit Culkin, Macaulay's dad, as the 48th most powerful person in the industry in the early 90s because of, you know, the power he wielded over his famous son. But his demanding control freak tendencies started to piss off executives and producers. For reasons I don't totally understand, he forbade Macaulay from promoting My Girl. When he appeared in the film version of The Nutcracker, he demanded that his son's co-star, Jessica Lynn Cohen, not share top billing, and he wouldn't approve a single candidate for director on 1994's Richie Rich. Uh, my favorite instance of Kit Culkin's megalomania is when Macaulay hosted SNL in November of 1991, becoming the second youngest celebrity after Drew Barrymore to do so. His dad apparently offered the following unambiguous warning before the show— do good or I'll hit you. I'm sure not delivered like that. Uh, he also forbade his son to use cue cards, despite the fact that every cast member on SNL uses cue cards. Lauren Michaels demands it in case the writers have to make any last minute changes to the scripts. So Macaulay not being able to use cue cards meant that nobody could use cue cards, which had a dramatic effect on how the show was produced that day, all because of Macaulay's dad. Macaulay did 15 movies in seven years, all before the age of 14. When you put it like that, no wonder he got tight with Michael Jackson. This is some Joe Jackson level uh, whip cracking. Obviously, Macaulay started getting a little tired. He told New York Magazine, I just remember the exact point when I was growing a little more tired during the movie The Good Son. I'd already done one or two things that year, and I just said to Kit, listen, I'm really getting tired, and I'm not school as much as I'd like to be. I really need some time off. And he said, yeah, sure. And then the next thing I know, I'm on the next set doing the next thing, and it just kind of clicked in my brain. Okay, there's basically nothing I can do to make this stop. After Richie Rich was a comparative flop in 1994, Macaulay stepped back from making movies until 2003. He later said when he retired in 1994, he basically thought, well, I hope you all made your money because there's no more coming from me. And this is when it gets even messier. 
Macaulay's parents split up when he was a teenager and engaged in a very nasty public battle over his custody and, more to the point, over his fortune. It's thought that this was actually one of the reasons that he stepped back from acting in the first place, because people were starting to get wind of his messy family life, and it sort of took a bite out of the whole cute, precocious kid thing. Um, the teenage Macaulay said he had no idea how much he'd earned, because his dad would, this is amazing, would hide the newspapers from him, so he wouldn't read stuff about both the family drama and also how much he was making. So, as he later admitted to New York Magazine, I can understand why they did that. They didn't want me running off to my friends saying, I just made $8 million. But when he was 16, he learned that he had a $50 million fortune, 5-0, which was getting eaten up by his parents' escalating legal costs over who was going to have control over him and his money. And Culkin later recalled, basically, I had millions and millions of dollars in the bank and my mother couldn't pay rent because she was spending all her money on lawyers. We were about to get evicted from our apartment. The only way I could get access to that money was to take my father's name off of it. But I didn't want to make it messy, or messier than it already was, so I figured I'd take both their names off my trust fund. And because of this, in the past, it's often been reported that Macaulay sued his parents to emancipate himself. But he said several times in recent years that this actually wasn't the case. During a 2020 Esquire interview, he said, It's often misconstrued that I emancipated myself from my parents. I legally took my parents' name off my trust fund and found an executor, someone who would look over my finances just in case anyone wanted to stick their pinky in the pie. Jesus. Not, yeah, there's really no, no sunny day there, is there? Yeah. But, well, the sunny day is that Culkin's landed okay. Um, you know, he doesn't really have to work again. <laughs> he told uh, Ellen DeGeneres in 2018, I felt like some kid worked really, really hard and I inherited all his money. Oh, that's that's kind of devastating the way it's phrased. I had kind of no real sense. It allows me to treat everything like a hobby. I do nothing for my dinner nowadays. So I can just do all kind of projects that I want to do, whether it's writing or painting or new website or whatever it is. He married Rachel Minor at the age of 18. They separated at age 20, and then he dated Mila Kunis for eight years, which I have no memory of. Oh, yeah. I remember um, Russell Brand did a whole bit on it because uh, he was trying to ask uh, Mila Kunis out when they were doing Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And she kept being <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm on my boy, oh, my boyfriend, my boyfriend, Mac, Mac. And he was like, who's this Mac guy? And then she was like, oh, yeah, Mac's coming to the set finally. He was like, oh, now I'm going to see who you know, my competition is for Mila. And he's like, wait a minute. That's not Mac. That's Macaulay Culkin. You're sleeping with Nicole. No, do the face. Do the face. Like, <laughs> that's, don't try to rebrand him as Mac. <laughs> that's Macaulay Culkin. That's fair. Uh, he returned to acting with 2003's Party Monster, in which he played the infamous club kid killer of New York, Michael Alig. Alig? I think it's Alig. Do you know this story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I watched Party Monster a lot in high school. Uh, <laughs> Seth Green is great in that movie. And then when I was at page six, we did a lot of reporting on uh, on him. Yeah, this story is it's about as far as you can get from, like, cute child star, if you want to give a quick rundown of the Michael Allen case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were club kids. Alec bust tables at Danceteria, which was a very famous New York City dance club uh, in the, what was it, late 80s, early 90s? And they did a whole lot of drugs and had these really elaborate, incredible costumes. And then at one point, they also murdered a guy and uh, kept the body in their bathtub and then dismembered it and tossed him into the Hudson River. 
Uh, Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> Merry <laughs> also, Christmas, uh, everyone. Yeah. Uh, he lived in Paris for a while. Uh, I believe he's currently married to Brenda Song hmm. uh, and has a child. I think had. so, yeah. Yeah. And the last time, the, the really big last story that I remember from him was being in the Pizza Underground. Which I'd never heard of until this. Yeah, they uh, they were a very much a novelty band that uh, got better bookings than I ever did. <laughs> um. They parodied songs by the Velvet Underground with pizza-related lyrics. As yeah, that's the bit. It's right there in the name. That's it. That's the tweet. Uh, scaling such heights of wit as all pizza parties for all tomorrow's parties, pizza gal for femme fatale, take a bite of the wild slice. That's not even. That was not even clever. They're all, it's all stupid. I can't, I bear Macaulay Culkin no malice, but I hated this story when it came out. It was the lowest common denominator, quote unquote, funny, <laughs> sub weird owl. Waiting and, for and the delivery were, man instead of waiting for the man is pretty good though. I will say, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let you die Punch on air. <laughs> I know they played like rough trade. Uh, where did they uh, was babies all right around there? Or Arlene, I don't know. Arlene's groceries or something. I mean, the thing that makes me mad is that they didn't commit to the bit. It was all like acoustic sing along y kind of stuff. Yeah. Like it wasn't a real bit. Ba- like That's if what I'm saying, it was incredibly half assed. Yeah, yeah. If no, if they had actually the done like the alternate tunings yeah. or like they had like viola. No, and they were literally just of this Macaulay Culkin tone. played a pizza. He just uh, he was like banging a pizza box with like a drumstick. It was the most half-assed in the world and it was like predictably all over media because people were like oh Macaulay Culkin's in a Velvet Underground band it's just oh my god it may be I, I, I'm so it's so funny to me that you didn't know about this because I yeah I didn't it sent me into apoplectic rage when it happened my favorite bit of all this right now is that Heigl's wearing new glasses I've never seen him in <laughs> and he looks distressingly like David Kirsch right now <laughs> And so I just have David Koresh yelling at me about Macaulay Culkin and pizza. And it, it feels very right, but... I tell you one thing. I would rather have the FBI outside of my compound playing pigs being slaughtered than listening to a, a pizza-themed Velvet Underground cover band. That's the TMI guarantee. <laughs> uh, Macaulay Culkin is reportedly close with his mother and his other siblings, but has not had contact with his dad since the last day of the custody hearing when he was 16 years old. Jesus. He claims that his dad took some of his acting mementos out from under him, his very first costume, pictures, things that he calls stuff I was going to put in storage and dig out when I was 50 or 60 for a laugh. Uh, Kit Culkin reportedly lives in Oregon and is supposedly in ill health. When the Daily Mail caught up to him in 2016 and asked him about Macaulay, Kit responded simply, I don't consider him a son anymore. Grim. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, that is all depressing. So now we got to talk about the best part of this film, The Wet Bandits. Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, they are brilliant as the dumbest robbers on the face of the earth. Shockingly, Joe Pesci was not the first choice for this role. Chris Columbus and John Hughes wanted Pesci's Raging Bull co-star Robert De Niro to play the role of Harry Lime, named for Orson Welles' character in The Third Man, apparently. Uh, Mm -hmm. After Robert De Niro turned it down, it was offered to John Lovitz, who also said no. It's a shame they couldn't have just waited like 20 years and then Robert De Niro would do anything for a paycheck. Yes. (laughs) Be in your high school play if you can make his day rate. John Lovitz told the Huffington Post, I didn't want to play second fiddle. Can you do John Lovitz? I didn't want to play second fiddle. (laughs) All I can do is acting. 
Yeah, yeah. I, know. I didn't want to play second fiddle to some kid. Then it became the biggest comedy of all time. Oops. <laughs> uh, this is the section that I've subheaded. Joe Pesci being terrifying, a brief history. Joe Pesci, uh, he had appeared in Scorsese's Goodfellas earlier the same year as Home Alone. And so he brought a bit of that energy to the production. He went uh, semi-method, I guess, uh, on the set of Home Alone. He tried to avoid Macaulay on the set to instill a genuine sense of fear in him. <laughs> and then there was the time when he bit his co-star's fingers. As Macaulay told Rule 42, in the first Home Alone, they hung me up on a coat hook. You know, it's the end of the movie. Pesci said, I'm going to bite all your fingers off one at a time. And during one of the rehearsals, he bit me and it broke the skin. And he claims he still has a little Joe Pesci's tooth scar on his hand to this very day. And yeah, I guess after decades of playing tough guys, he was just very clearly used to film sets as being a, a safe place to swear left, right, and center. Muscle memory kicked in on the set of Home Alone, and he found it difficult not to drop F-bombs all the time. And Chris Columbus tried to curb this as much as possible by suggesting he substitute Fridge instead. And as we mentioned earlier, much like the old man in A Christmas Story, Pesci developed this gibberish mumbling that feels like swearing, uh, but it is not. Ladies and gentlemen, friend of the pod, foe swearing gibberish. Uh, Daniel Stern, meanwhile, accidentally dropped an S-bomb in one scene when he's trying to retrieve his shoe through a doggy door, which uh, Columbus quietly left in the film for some reason. Uh, Chris Columbus ran into Martin Scorsese just after he finished shooting The Irishman with Joe Pesci a few years back, and he says Scorsese told him, we're out in the street shooting, and all anyone wants to do is to talk to Joe about Home Alone. Which, how much do you think that pisses off not only Pesci, but also Scorsese for all the movies that he's been in? And all anyone wants to do is to talk about this movie where he gets hit in the face with a paint can by a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the man is an Oscar winner. Yeah. But at least he bit a, a child's finger so hard it scarred him for per- permanently. Literally Must scarred Macaulay Culkin for life. <laughs> uh, yeah, the whole production team recalled Joe Pesci as being more difficult to work with than Macaulay because he was kind of a diva. He believed that some of the dialogue that was written was beneath him, and he resented the early call times because they prevented him. <laughs> I love this. From starting his day with his habitual nine holes of golf. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess he, he he complained to the assistant director about this by grabbing him by the collar and dragging him to Chris Columbus's office. Okay, we're going to go talk about this. <laughs> and oh. the daily call times were moved back from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. to accommodate Joe Pesci's rounds of golf. That's so funny. I would not have picked Pesci as that much of a diva. I know. I know. You know, a lot of those like tough guy actors are actually very babies. Like, well, well, babies, but also like very like kind of quiet and meditative and like into the process and very like thin skinned. I had a friend who did makeup for uh, Paul Sorvino. And it was, he mm. said he was a lovely, lovely guy, but like extremely unlike his on-screen persona. Like very well read, very quiet, very like, you know. Mm. I feel like I've heard a few other examples too of those kind of tough guys being very like gentle. Although Joe Pesci doesn't sound all that gentle. 
<laughs> Daniel Stern, on the other hand, was very gentle. He really wanted this part. He later said, the script struck a chord with me. I hadn't gotten a chance to express that kind of physical comedy since I was a kid. I thought, I can hit a home run with this. I went into audition for Chris Columbus. I wanted it so bad. When I left, I thought, ah, I could do that better. It was the only time in my life I called and said, can I come back? Chris told me later he was going to cast me, but he let me audition again. <laughs> uh, and it was just really nice for him to work with Pesci because they had already met years earlier when they were making a film in 1982 called I'm Dancing as Fast as I Can. And Stern said, everybody assumed we were thrown together for the first time on Home Alone, but we'd made each other giggle on the set in another movie years before that we were both cut out of. I'm dancing as fast as I can. We played people in a mental institution. Joe walked around all the time with this rolled up tube of architecture drawings. That was his character. And during one of the takes, there's a ping pong table in the middle of the room, and Joe takes his tube of paper and puts it up to his nose and snorts the line of ping pong balls. I fell on the floor laughing. I became his friend right then. And Daniel Stern, he actually backed out of this movie because they added a few extra weeks to the shooting schedule, but wouldn't give him any extra money. So he backed out on principle. But the new guy they got, this guy Dan Robach, who... I didn't really know him. I guess he had a recurring role as Dr. Leslie Arntz on Lost. Uh, had apparently no chemistry with Joe Pesci whatsoever, so they went back to Stern and got him back in. Probably by this point, they were working with 20th Century Fox and had a bigger budget, so maybe they could give him the money that he wanted. But yeah, Daniel Stern said he had a great time hanging out with Macaulay because he was used to being around child actors from working on The Wonder Years. And both Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern said that they had no idea they were working on a major blockbuster. So they just intentionally gave really over-the-top, goofy performances just to keep things fun. Totally unrelated. Do you know Daniel Stern directed Rookie of the Year? I actually did. I yeah. Didn't realize uh, that. And he's in my beloved Chud. <laughs> right he's a, a lot of good like pre-home alone movies that i forget about diner's great mm -hmm. breaking away is wonderful i need to rewatch breaking away and he's a sculptor and his preferred medium is bronze oh and one of his children is a california state senator whoa i went to school with uh his niece and i think he agreed to like act in one of her short plays or something. I remember it was like, I, I, for some reason I didn't get to see it, but I'm such a huge Wonder Years fan. I was really bummed yeah. I didn't get to see like one of my heroes. I'm just going to say, I'm sure that was big for you. <laughs> but now we have to talk about the true MVP of this movie, John Candy. They had him on set for just a day and he, you know, knocks it out of the park. It's a classic John Candy Chicago guy, Gus Polinski, <laughs> the polka king of the Midwest. Candy's obviously a regular player in the John Hughes rep. Uh, he stars not only as Uncle Buck, but he's in planes, trains, and automobiles. And that is actually what inspired his part in Home Alone. According to the aforementioned episode of Netflix's The Movies That Made Us, John Candy did the cameo in Home Alone as a favor to Hughes, and they had him for one 23-hour filming session, which he ad-libbed largely. Columbus told Insider in 2020, he was on the movie for only one day, but it resulted in so much great improvisation. None of that stuff was in the script. The funeral parlor story, that was all improvised at 4.30 in the morning. We could barely keep a straight face on set just listening to John. <laughs> Wait, what was that stuff? Was that the one that was like, oh, he was okay. You know, kids are resilient. I'm trying to remember like what the funeral I don't, yeah, part no, was. I don't, yeah. have it on, I don't have it at hand. And this was done as a favor. So he worked for scale, which was the minimum that the SAG will let you work for. 
which is uh, $414 came out to him or less than the kid who played the pizza delivery boy. <laughs> and then it went on to become the highest grossing live action comedy of all time, which kind of upset John Candy. Uh, Columbus said there was certainly a little resentment on John's part. It was a deal between him and John at the time. I never met John Candy, but he came on the movie. I don't know if he ever got any kind of compensation from Fox. And then the following year when Chris Columbus worked uh, with Candy on the film Only the Lonely, John Candy was still pissed off about it. He said there were a couple times on set when he would make a cutting remark about Fox and what he was paid. Uh, but <laughs> fate had worse ideas in store for John Candy. His young son became obsessed with the movie Home Alone and went to see it in the theaters all of the time. And because of that, he started emulating Kevin's smart-ass attitude towards his parents in the beginning of the movie. So John Candy started complaining that his son was now emulating the attitude of the child actor in the movie that paid him no money and went on to make all of the money. I remember as a little kid watching Home Alone and like kind of thinking that his family was really mean to him. And they were to a certain extent. But rewatching Home Alone as an adult, he was a little brat. I like forgot how obnoxious he was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's bad. Continuing down the cast list, Buzz, uh, who plays Macaulay's brother, the actor who played him is a guy named Devin Rattray, who starred in a very strange movie in 2008 called Courting Condi, where a British filmmaker followed Devin as he tried to win the heart of Condoleezza Rice. <laughs> I, I, don't, I have no idea. <laughs> it's a very aughts yeah. sentiment. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Things went south with the girlfriend from Home Alone. Uh, anyway. Um, oh, you got to do it. You got to buzz your girlfriend. Woof. <laughs> Rather than subject an actual little girl to such cruelty, Chris Columbus famously got a crew member's son and dressed him up as a uh, an unpretty little girl. As Buzz's girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do this next part? <laughs> <laughs> really gonna stick me with this okay. no i'll do it just now getting word uh <laughs> Wait, what's which, just my earpiece right now yeah from by TMI I mean, headquarters by, by Winnetka, I mean, from our jordan, bureau <laughs> jordan is just now researching word about a year ago december 2021 devin rattray was booked for domestic assault and battery after allegedly strangling his girlfriend in an oklahoma hotel room they reportedly had an argument over his girlfriend failing to charge fans for his autograph. Oh. Ah, that's gets worse and worse. When they got back to the hotel, according to the affidavit, he pushed his girlfriend onto the room's bed, pressed one of his hands against her throat, pressed his other hand over her mouth, and applied pressure, and supposedly told her, this is how you die. After this made headlines, an old friend of his came forward accusing him of rape a few years earlier by drugging her drink which is surely one of the most dark left-hand turns that we've taken about a bit player and a beloved comedy since we discovered the horrific real-life atrocities of the actor who played Random Task in Austin Powers. Continuing down the McAllister siblings, there's Michael C. Morona, who is most famous, I would say not just to you, but to the most of us, as Big Pete on The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Most interesting McAllister sibling, non-Pete and Pete category. I would say including, including. This is a cool story, I think. Okay. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you like Life Aquatic? 
I I mean because of you and because of that anecdote. That yes. Yes. Oh okay, man. <laughs> uh <laughs> Most interesting McAllister sibling is big sister Megan, played by Hilary Wolf, who later appeared in Big Girls Don't Cry, They Get Even, and also Home Alone 2 before she left the industry to pursue a career in judo. In 1996 and 2000, she was a member of the Summer Olympic judo team for the U.S. She should get together with Jonathan Lipnicki and start a former child Whoa. actor self-defense studio. <laughs> you imagine the pair of them rolling around as like paid protection? <laughs> uh, among the other improvised highlights of this movie include the aftershave scream as written macaulay culkin was supposed to lip sync to white christmas put the aftershave on his cheeks but as chris columbus noted to insider if you put something on your face that burns most people move their hands right away so my direction to him was when you pat your face move your hands and scream and i think it was the first take that he kept his hands on his cheeks it's funny the iconic moment from home alone was an accident uh, do you remember in Dogma when Selma Hayek is talking about being the muse or, uh, oh. the, and she goes, uh, the one with the kid and the scream and she's ah! like, I, I didn't do that so, one. Somebody sold his soul to yeah. Satan to get the grosses up on that piece of shit. Um, that was a great uh, movie. Yeah, it's like the last good Kevin Smith movie. Um, Columbus said he liked it because it resembled the Edvard Munch painting The Scream. He said, that's why Macaulay was such an interesting kid. No one else would have done that. And then uh, Mac, <laughs> we're just calling him Mac now. Yeah, well, I was. I got tired of typing it. Well, that's what the Red Letter Media guys call him, actually. Mac, yeah. yeah but they know I guess him. that's what he just goes by, yeah. Uh. Uh, Mr. Culkin <laughs> of the Oregon Culkins. Um, <laughs> the Chippewa Fall Culkins. We have to get another Titanic <laughs> yeah. reference in until we finally drop that. Uh, he, uh, Mac... <laughs> Mr. Culkin also allegedly made up the line, do you guys give up or are you thirsty for more? And another improvised moment is when Marv and Harry reconvene after being uh, subjected to the first round of booby traps and Marv sees Harry covered in feathers and says, why are you dressed like a chicken? Um, Catherine O'Hara. There were no other alternate choices. It was only Catherine O'Hara. It was only ever Catherine O'Hara. It could have only <laughs> ever been Catherine O'Hara. Others were considered for the role of Kevin's quasi-deadbeat dad, played by the late John Hurd, Michael Keaton, Brian Cranston, even Whoa. Christopher Reeve were considered for the role. Uh, too handsome. Been, yeah. <laughs> really. Um, John Candy almost had a run for his money, though, as the token plus-sized <laughs> white guy in the film. Chris From the Farley, Midwest. Yeah, Chris Farley, his heir apparent, uh, apparently auditioned to play the role of the suburban Santa who lights up in front of Kevin and offers him the Tic Tacs. That's a the great actor who, bit. Yeah. The actor who got that role, though, Ked Hudson Campbell, told Chicago Magazine he was there when Farley came in to audition, saying, apparently he was out all night and had just been dropped off after a night of shenanigans, shall we say. Farley was kind of making cat calls to the girls who worked in the office. I was thinking, oh boy. Chris <laughs> went first. It didn't go very well. He walked in and walked right out. <laughs> I went in and hit what I wanted to hit. A few weeks later, I got the call. But the only thing scarier than Chris Farley after a night of marathon partying and low-key sexual harassing the morning after is Old Man Marley, the misunderstood yeah. neighbor, played by veteran character actor Roberts Blossom, who also starred in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Christine by John Carpenter. Blossom was like the scary hobo guy in like all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, justifiably so. Well, yes. <laughs> it's, that's... That's very true. There was other stuff that I 
know him from? Yeah, he's in Escape from Alcatraz. Um, he's in The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> anyway, according to Christopher Columbus, his name was inspired by Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. Columbus made it a bigger role than he originally had in the script. Um, but why was that, Jordan? Uh, I guess he wanted to introduce a subplot that kind of like, you know, brought a, an emotional heart to the story. So it wasn't all, you know, gags with Kevin shooting robbers with a BB gun. Um, <laughs> I've actually seen some conflicting reports as to exactly why uh, this role was changed. In some interviews... Columbus has said that he introduced the subplot of Marley being estranged from his family, and he added that scene where he and Kevin are talking in the church. But I've also seen interviews where he says they didn't change a word of the church scene, but added the moment at the very end of the movie when Kevin looks out the window and sees old man Marley reuniting with his formerly estranged son and hugging his granddaughter. Uh, watching that Netflix documentary, Movies That Made Us, I got the impression that John Hughes didn't take kindly to his scripts being rewritten and was maybe a little prickly about it. So I almost got the sense that after John Hughes's death in 2009, Columbus started downplaying how much he changed just sort of out of tribute to him. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting, but Columbus said that the movie was originally going to end on the family asking Kevin what he'd been up to. And then he just does the, Oh, just hung around. Everyone laughs, freeze frame on Kevin sitcom ending. Lame. So this whole bit with, uh, you know, the family reuniting next door gave a bit of sentimentality to this movie. Uh, and also was beautifully undercut by Buzz screaming, Kevin, what did you do to my room? This is it's a, a great, great ending line. line. Yeah. Yeah. But Columbus told Insider, I added the moment when Marley talked about not being able to see his granddaughter. I also added the very end of the movie when Kevin sees that Marley is reunited with his granddaughter. That's probably my proudest addition to the movie. Now we're going to talk about the real enemy of this movie. We're going to fight the real enemy. <laughs> the bitter, conniving, airline crystal-stealing cheapskate Uncle Frank, played by Gary <laughs> Bamman. The part was originally written for Kelsey Grammer. Can you believe that? That would have been wild. Yeah, I know. Uh, who had Frasier up? started yet at this point? No. No, because Cheers was still on the air. Yeah, Cheers was still on. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what the original pitch for... They wanted to keep... Lester Glenn Charles and all those guys wanted to keep Frasier, like they wanted, not Frasier, they wanted to keep Kelsey Grammer around and they pitched a show where he was going to play a paraplegic millionaire magazine mogul and motorcycle enthusiast. So Larry Flint, basically? I, this was this was scrapped. can't believe they scrapped that and went with uh, Meet the Tortellis. <laughs> it's a show so offensive to the Italian-American community that it was cancelled before it was decided that we were allowed to be mocked roundly, <laughs> justifiably so. So anyway. I guess Kelsey Grammer was apparently busy on Cheers, so he wasn't available to be at home alone. There's a strong internet conspiracy theory that goes a little something like this. Again, really just upholds my view that Uncle Frank is the true villain of Home Alone. According <laughs> to this theory, there's an early version of the script where we learn that the jealous Uncle Frank is actually the guy who paid the wet bandits to rob the McAllister's home because he knew they were going to be away. And presumably mm. he would share in the bounty. There's no truth to this that I've been able to find, but there is a medium funny deleted scene that shows just what a dick Uncle Frank truly is. He goes up to Kevin and says, do you know where they're going to call you in France? Which you'll remember is where the family's heading for vacation. When Kevin says no, he pants him and delivers the punchline, yank. 
It's, he sells it. He sells That's it. That's uncle it's, stuff, though, you know. You don't pants kids. Yeah, it's true. Unless you're another kid. Yeah. Well, sure. <laughs> the ethics of pantsing. <laughs> a, d- a debate on TMI. <laughs> Bosses at iHeart just welcome, welcome watching. Can you, William F. Buckley? We'll do a firing line on pantsing. Oh boy, rolling right along. Speaking of online conspiracy theories, we got to talk about one of my favorites involving my beloved Elvis. I'd say one in maybe every three pop culture conspiracies have to do with Elvis, but uh, there's mm-hmm. a persistent theory that Elvis, who you must remember, supposedly died in 1977, 13 years before Home Alone was filmed, has a cameo as an extra in Home Alone in the scene where Catherine O'Hara is arguing and begging and pleading with the ticket agent behind the counter in Scranton. You know, I've been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I? Scranton. Scranton. <laughs> With with genuine shame in his voice. Uh, In the background behind Catherine, you'll see a larger bearded man who really kind of does bear a vague resemblance to middle-aged Elvis. Chris Columbus was actually asked about this, and he gently shot the rumors down. He said, I remember having conversations with that guy, and the movie I had just done prior to Home Alone was Heartbreak Hotel, which was about Elvis Presley. I'm an Elvis Presley fanatic, so if that guy were Elvis, I would have known. (laughs) <laughs> people thought he was really Elvis. It wasn't, they didn't think he was like an Elvis impersonator. Have you seen him? The script. Like it, it's, it's weird. Like he looks, he well, looks so like a Kurt Russell, but like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Like he, he looks like if he looked exactly like Elvis, it'd be like too obvious. Like this looks like, like if Elvis just like got old and stopped being famous. Like it, I, I actually kind of see what, have you seen it? I don't understand how people are like vociferously thinking that that's Elvis. I, I mean, look at the one I just sent. No, you. I'm, I'm I'm seeing it. I mean, I don't think people people don't honestly believe anything. I don't think. <laughs> oh, people just trying to get Jordan, through the day. The Jordan, the Jordan articulated philosophy. Uh, people don't really believe in anything. I don't think. As you meditate on that. We'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it 
anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now it is time to talk about the other main character in this movie, the McAllister House. Chris Columbus and his crew spent weeks searching for the titular home in Home Alone, and ultimately they chose a house on Lincoln Avenue in Winnetka, Illinois, 16 miles outside of Chicago, because they thought it was both warm and also menacing. Apparently it had been up for consideration for use in Uncle Buck, uh, I guess because John Hughes loves to set his productions in the Chicago area, but it was not selected. Most movies would use exteriors and shoot the rest on the soundstage, but because of the intricate booby traps, they actually filmed a lot of the interiors as well in the actual house. The main staircase, the ground floor landing, the kitchen, the attic, the basement, and I think the master bedroom scene in the movie were all shot in this five-bedroom residence. The home was owned by John and Cynthia Abshine, who were rented an apartment by the production for the duration of the shoot, but they opted to stay at home because the location manager explained Explained that under the contract they'd signed, if they needed to walk down a wall when they weren't home, they could do it. So Cynthia said, so we were told it was best just to remain on premises. Wow. So yeah, yeah. Uh, when they filmed the movie in um, John Lennon's childhood home, which is now owned by the National Trust Estate in England, um, I, I think they were given permission, but they ended up knocking a wall down just to be able to get the cameras to fit. In John Lennon's childhood home. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so this family who owned the house holed up in the master bedroom suite for what they were told would be a four to five week shoot. Turns out it was five and a half months. John Abshine said, we put a hot plate up there to cook. 
We didn't have to cook that much, though, because we had full access to the food truck that the crew used, which our daughter, who was six at that time, loved. And though the production didn't knock down any walls, they did do a little redecorating. The production team papered over the walls to provide a more holiday-oriented feel with the reds and the greens, and all the practical lights and chandeliers used in the movie resemble little jewels, almost like a Christmas ornament. And they also installed Kevin's famous treehouse in the backyard, which unfortunately the owners declined to keep, and it was demolished once filming ended. And the house became such a popular tourist destination after the film came out that the family asked Google to blur it out to deter visitors. Uh, These poor, long-suffering neighbors really had their patience tested. As Chris Columbus told EW in 2015, people were extremely cooperative, but I think they were starting to get a little annoyed with us because it was a low-budget movie and we couldn't afford to build the exterior of the house on a soundstage. So all those stunts that happened outside the house happened at night. We would be shooting at like 5 at night to 6 in the morning. And I think the lights and the actors shouting and me yelling action probably got on a few people's nerves. (laughs) The Abenshines ultimately sold the famous Home Alone house in 2012 for $1.585 million, which, for what it is, kind of seems like a song. Big house, crazy history. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Great location right outside of Chicago. But when <laughs> Home Alone was put on Disney Plus last year, Airbnb did a promo thing, kind of like what they did for Hocus Pocus, where they rented the house out complete with dangling paint cans and those weird angel candle holders on the kitchen table and Buzz's tarantula for one night only. They did a great job. Like, if you look at the site, it looks exactly like the house in the movie. I mean, I know they filmed some of the rooms, but not all. But the master suite looks just like it's got the big four-poster bed that Kevin jumps on with the popcorn. Like, it did a really good job. wonder what the tarantula got paid. He did it for scale. Yeah, more than John Candy. (laughs) Filming began in February 1990, shooting throughout the North Shore and Chicago area. In the movie, the McAllister family is in Paris while Kevin's back home in Illinois, but production was located entirely within the Chicago area. Uh, The scenes set at Paris Orly Airport were actually shot at O'Hare International. The scene where the family sprints through the crowded airport was apparently one of the toughest scenes to film and took days with the actress Senta Moses, who played Tracy, telling The Hollywood Reporter, there were thousands of extras, all expertly choreographed, so none of us would be in danger running at full speed through the American Airlines terminal. And we ran at full speed. Sometimes we'd bump into each other like a multi-car pileup on the expressway and just crack up laughing. There were so many setups and narrowly missed moments of disaster, but to my knowledge, no one got hurt. The production team turned the basketball court at a disused local high school. Do we do we find out what high school that was? Yes. Um, uh, it had like closed down. It was one of those cases where there were no more kids in town, basically. Um, New Trier Township High School. The production team turned the basketball court at the disused local high school, New Trier Township. Uh, high school into an impromptu soundstage where they built the plane interiors as well as some of the rooms in the McAllister home that they didn't shoot at the real house. They also built the sets of the flooded Murphy house and the school swimming pool. This abandoned school has an interesting cinematic history. It was apparently used to film parts of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Uncle Buck. John Hughes really loved New Tree or Township High School. If you're a teen movie director, you got a freebie abandoned high school in a town that you like to shoot in far away from the studio systems. You're going to take it. You're going to hold on to that until the walls fall off. (laughs) 
Speaking of basements, you'll remember the evil furnace in the basement, which laughs maniacally in Kevin's imagination as the doors snap open and shut. This was supposed to be part of a longer dream sequence where Kevin would be terrorized by various uh, parts of the home, but ultimately it proved just too expensive and so scrapped. A furnace effect was stripped down to the point where they just used two guys with fishing line and flashlights. Uh, classic. <laughs> Uh, there's another internet fan theory that Kevin grew up to be Jigsaw, the titular killer in the Saw franchise. Uh, there's a whole essay you can read that details the visual similarities between Kevin's furnace and the bear trap, uh, <laughs> used on the face of a victim in the Saw film. Ugh. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Were you afraid yeah. of your basement? No. Oh. Because ours was finished, and we had someone, oh. like, we had, like, a renter there for many years as well. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, so, uh, no. My basement was very demystified for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like a creepy root cellar or anything either. <laughs> Although I get, I, I have been in basements like that. Uh, considering how much money Home Alone made, it's easy to forget what a relatively low budget film it actually was, as far as major studio comedies. Um, director Chris Columbus really wanted to do snow dressing as part of the background for the movie, but that costs a lot of money and was deemed too expensive. Then on the second day of shooting, which was Valentine's Day, there was a blizzard and everyone rushed to set up the climactic scene where Kevin wakes up on Christmas morning and reunites with his family in the newly fallen snow. Uh, and they went with the classic Hollywood trick of potato flakes, dried potato flakes shot around the scene. Uh, and then they had to make do with piles of rehydrated and subsequently rotting potato all over the ground in the coming days. That is disgusting. Because of the snowstorm, the production team had no choice but to bring in snow machines subsequently so that they could match the look of the property once the real snow had started to melt. One of the producers told Chicago Magazine that they had refrigerated semis, semi-trucks, of shaved ice coming to the set with a crew of 15 men dumping tons of ice in the yard every day. And then when the filming wrapped, the production donated some of the artificial snow they had created out of wax and plastic to the Lyric Opera of Chicago, where it has since been used in a number of their productions. That's adorable. Yes, that is a that is an all time TMI fact right there. The <laughs> yeah, whereabouts right. of the fake snow in Home Alone, <laughs> which you you can visit, folks. Wow. All right, let's talk about all the bad stuff Kevin did that didn't involve maiming people. First of all, <laughs> well, obviously, he went into Buzz's room and destroyed his shelves, thus freeing his tarantula. But not before he thumbed through Buzz's copy of Playboy. And to keep Macaulay, who was nine years old, from actually seeing the porn, the crew taped the pages shut. And then, while Macaulay jumps up and down on the bed eating popcorn, crew members laid on the floor on either side to catch him in case he fell. Come on, kids know how to jump on the bed. <laughs> uh, he also had a 30-year-old stunt double. But I think it was Kevin himself who did the bit where the Wet Bandits fan nearly runs him down. You know, he stops right in front of his yeah. face as he's screaming. Uh, that shot was done by the van reversing away from Macaulay and then played backwards. And then to sort of mimic the van's suspension, you know, as the brakes go on. Before the van started, they had crew members shaking either side to make it look like it had just stopped. Clever. And then, of course, we can't forget the movie within the movie, the pitch-perfect gangster pastiche, Angels with Filthy Souls, <laughs> a play on the James Cagney movie, Angels with Dirty Faces. This is the, quote, rubbish movie that Kevin watches that features the immortal line, 
Can you do that? Are you able to do no, this? No, I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't polish a, cag, a quasi cagney for you. I'm gonna give you to the count of ten to get your ugly yellow no good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. One, two, ten. Fifteen seconds of a Tommy gun. I oh, I wish I could do this. Keep the change, you filthy, filthy animal. animal. It's almost like John Wayne. <laughs> He really, he's got the two voices. He's got this like nasal thing and then he's got the John Wayne at the end. Oh my God, that guy's so good. This movie was so well done that many have actually believed that it really is an old movie from the 30s. A few years back, Seth Rogen tweeted, My entire childhood, I thought the old-timey movie that Kevin watches in Home Alone was actually an old movie. And this led a shocked Chris Evans to respond, It's not? And part of the reason it looks so convincing is that they use the old carbon arc lighting system, which was popular back in the 40s through the 60s. I'm not even going to try to really describe what that is. Google <laughs> it if you're interested. Carbon arc lighting system. Uh, Columbus told Insider, that richness of black and white made it look like a movie from that era. And I think that's why some people think it's a real movie. Shot in one day, too. So this brings us to the truly naughty thing that Kevin did. Booby traps. <laughs> most of which would have killed or at least severely maimed human beings in real life. Production designer John Muto said, I kept telling people that we were doing a kid's version of Straw Dogs, which is Sam Peckinpah's 1971 thriller, which concludes with Dustin Hoffman's character committing acts of really quite savage violence against a group of home invaders. Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, and Macaulay Culkin didn't actually take the hits and pratfalls themselves. The stunt doubles actually did. And these were serious falls. Stunt coordinator Freddie Hintz said in a behind-the-scenes documentary, in the old days, if somebody fell or slipped on marbles or whatever was in the script, guys would just kind of fall down. We <laughs> wanted to up the ante and make these guys literally look like they were hitting a patch of black ice, feet up over your head, flat on your back. It changed the way people did pratfalls in the movie business. Every comedy we did for the next 15 years, everybody would call for an interview and say, we want that Home Alone fall. Give me that Home Alone fall! <laughs> I got <laughs> I want his discs actually slipped. <laughs> uh, for years afterwards, in stunt circles, falls where you got a lot of air and land on your back were called the home alone, which it's not the first time we'll see this movie spawn a verb. The stunts were tested in the school gymnasium with lots of pads and lots of safety harnesses, but this was pre-CGI, so they didn't have any resources to erase any kind of pads or harnesses or manipulate the shot in any way, so these guys just fell down a lot. Uh, Chris Columbus later told EW, every time the stunt guy did one of those stunts, it wasn't funny. We'd watch it, and I would just pray that the guys were alive. And then they would get up and were absolutely fine, and then we'd watch the playback on video, and then we were relaxed enough to laugh. Even what seems simple, like the Joe Pesci character walking up the stairs in front of the house and doing a backflip. I really thought Troy, our stuntman, had broken his back on that first take. As I said, until we knew those guys were alive and okay, none of the stuff was funny, so I was surprised once we put the film together how well it actually worked for an audience. And these falls were made all the more cartoonish by the outlandish sound effects. According to supervising sound editor Michael Wilhoyt, the crew replaced the sound of bodies hitting the ground with frozen roast beef Ugh. being hit. <laughs> And um, in the scenes where people are burned to make the flesh, quote, bubble and sizzle on the screens, 
they press the soldering iron into chicken skin. That's so gross. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's the shot where Harry brands himself by touching a red hot doorknob. Um, that red hot doorknob was actually just made out of neon tubing. That was my favorite prank. I thought that was like especially ingenious and also sinister of literally branding your enemies with your initials. <laughs> Well, speaking of burning, the scene where Harry gets blasted by the blowtorch when he opens the door and it burns his head and he just stays there. It's like <laughs> Kevin with his hands on his cheeks when he's got the aftershave just just stays there. Just lets lets it happen. They used an illusion called Pepper's Ghost, which if you're interested, you should Google more about. There's lots of great YouTube clips about how this look was achieved. It's an old camera trick that dates back to Victorian times. Uh, again, it's hard to explain with words, but in short, there's a pane of glass set up in front of the camera angled at 45 degrees. And then just off camera, they set up a blowtorch and a black dummy head and a black booth. And this is just out of shot. And because it's all black, only the fire will show up as a reflection on the glass that's right in front of the camera. And the flame looks like it's molding around hmm. the head because there's a black dummy head there. So Joe Pesci walks in the door. You see this reflection that's just perfectly angled right around his head. So that's how they did that. Uh, apparently, they did not do this for Home Alone 2 because in a recent interview, Joe Pesci said that he was badly injured with a similar stunt in that movie. He said, in addition to the expected bumps, bruises, and general pains that you would associate with that particular type of physical humor, I did sustain serious burns to the top of my head during the scene where Harry's hat is set on fire. I don't know why they didn't use the Pepper's Ghost illusion for that. Maybe the room is too dark. I don't know. Friend of the pod, Pepper's Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> the shot where Kevin fires the BB gun directly at Daniel Stern's head as he pokes through the doggy door would have been easy to do in a post-CGI age, but in 1990, it was considerably more difficult. They had to pay a local artist working out of his mother's basement uh, in the neighborhood of $600 to hand paint the BB heading towards Marv's head directly onto six frames of the film. Uh, do you think the same guy also made the gold tooth that Harry has sparkle? Yeah. And the, the, the ghostly heads of Kevin's family? That are all insulting him as he's like, yeah. I made my family disappear. Yeah, yeah. That was rotoscoping. Impressive. Uh, the other traps were achieved in other low-budget, clever ways. The glass ornaments that Harry steps on were sugar glass designed to break in a way that doesn't break skin. Although Stern did wear rubber feet for his barefoot scenes. On the basement stairs, the nail that Marv oh. steps on. Oh, it's the worst. That's the worst yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is spring-loaded so that it retracts. It doesn't actually stab him. The POV shot of the iron falling down the laundry chute and smashing Daniel Stern in the face was achieved by putting a camera on a rope and dangling it down the laundry chute. With assurances made to Daniel Stern that they'd measured the rope to the correct length and it wouldn't actually hit him. The only trap that didn't require any special effects was the tarantula, which basically was filmed the way that it looks in the movie. Macaulay Culkin put it on Daniel Stern's face, which they only had one take to film, understandably. For years, it has been said in listicles and behind-the-scenes featurettes that his scream was dubbed in post, but Daniel Stern has said that that is not the case. On Facebook, in 2015, he wrote a lengthy post saying, in part, People who meet me are always curious if the tarantula was real, if my scream was real, and if I was scared, crazy, or both. The answer to all three of those questions is yes. And then he went on to detail the scene. The Wrangler introduced me to Barry the Tarantula. I am possibly misremembering his name. Apologies. 
They had Barry crawl around on my hand and head. I asked if Barry was trained and was told they had been working with him for a few days, but tarantulas are kind of tough to train. I asked if his poison had been removed and was told that if the poison was removed, Barry would die. I said, right, but if the poison isn't removed, then I'm going to die. See where I'm going here? Just don't make any sudden threatening moves and you'll be fine. But I'm going to be screaming in Barry's face. Do you think he'll be threatened by that? Barry doesn't have ears. He can't hear. Relax. It was even freakier because I had to do that scream, which meant my mouth was wide open too, and I was afraid the little bastard might take a detour down my throat. Hence, the scream came from a place in my soul that I've never before touched and never hoped to again. As a funny coda, he wrote, I then had to beat Joe Pesci with a crowbar. And we all know that even though it was pretend and funny and a fake crowbar, it's a thousand times more dangerous pissing off Joe Pesci than pissing off a venomous spider that's crawling on your face. That spider thing gets me, man. I don't like spiders. No. Yeah. And they all still worse, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like just like a recurring thing in horror movies. They did it in X. They did it in a quiet place. There's just something so primal about that fear for humans that people just keep returning to it. With the nail? Yeah. In the foot, too, I feel like more so than... Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, as cartoonish as all the violence, aside from the nail, is, uh, I was really struck by how gruesome some of these scenes are watching this movie as an adult. And so was Lauren Hansen, a writer for the outlet The Week. She contacted Dr. Ryan St. Clair of New York's Wild Cornell Medical College and asked him to diagnose the outcome of each of the wet bandits' injuries in a piece in 2016. And it's as hilarious as it is distressing. Here are some highlights from Dr. St. Clair. First up, we have the red-hot doorknob. If this doorknob is glowing visibly red in the dark, it has been heated to about 751 degrees Fahrenheit, and Harry gives it a nice, strong one second grip. By comparison, one second of contact with 155-degree water is enough to cause third-degree burns. The temperature of that doorknob is not quite hot enough to cause Harry's hand to burst into flames, but is not that far off. Assuming Harry doesn't lose the hand completely, he will almost certainly have other serious complications, including a high risk for infection and contracture, in which resulting scar tissue seriously limits the flexibility and movement of the hand, rendering it less than 100% useful. Kevin has moved from, quote, defending his house into sheer malice, in my opinion. Now we have the blowtorch. Harry has an interesting reaction to having a lit blowtorch aimed directly at his scalp. I mentioned this earlier. Rather than remove himself from the danger, he keeps the top of his skull directly in the line of fire for about seven seconds. What is likely a simple second-degree burn is now a full-thickness burn likely to cover necrosis of the skull bone. This Hmm. means that the skin and bone tissue on Harry's skull will be so damaged and rotted that his skull bone is essentially dying and will likely require a transplant. Okay. The falling iron bit. Let's estimate the distance from the first floor to the basement is about 15 feet and assume that the steam iron weighs four pounds. And note that the iron, <laughs> and note that the iron strikes Marv squarely in the mid-face. This is a serious impact with enough force to fracture bones surrounding the eyes. This is also known as a blowout fracture and can lead to serious disfigurement and debilitating double vision if not repaired properly. And finally, the shovel from old man Marley. Dr. St. Clair says, seriously, at this point, 
Marv and Harry have both suffered potentially crippling hand and foot injuries. Harry has proved to be nearly impervious to burns, and both managed to retain consciousness after taking a flying paint can straight to the face. Suddenly, a frail elderly man appears and weakly slaps them in turn with a flimsy aluminum Home Depot snow shovel. And somehow this was too much for them and they collapse? This movie was way more believable when I was eight. (laughs) And while we're on the topic of plot holes, there's a big one that's been noted on the internet. The storm prior to the McAllisters leaving for Paris knocked out the phone lines, thus making Kevin's family incapable of dialing through the home phone. That's why he thinks his family have just disappeared. However, Kevin was somehow able to order a pizza. Mm -hmm. So... Kind of diffuses the entire movie, huh? Yeah, I know. For a pretty, like, unnecessary moment, I guess. Although he does try out the whole, like, firecrackers with the bad movie thing. It's a dry run. Right, it's a dry run, (laughs) but I don't know. Maybe he he used a payphone down the street. Uh, Not really sure where this goes, but the script originally included an additional post-credit sequence where Harry and Marv watch Angels with Filthy Souls on TV in prison. And then when they hear the dialogue that Kevin fooled them with, they exchange looks and groan, which is cute. A few weeks before Home Alone's release, the chairman of 20th Century Fox paid a visit to George Lucas, who told him, you know, you've got a big hit coming? The one about the kid. When asked how he knew, he said he'd seen the trailer in the theater. The movie business is binary. The light is either on or it's off. If it's on, there's nothing you can do to screw it up. If it's off, there's nothing you can do to turn it on. Lucas apparently felt that the light was on, and he was right. In its opening weekend, Home Alone topped the box office, making $17,081,997. How unnecessarily specific. Bless you for were, saying all those numbers. Were the, were the cents not available, or were they just rounding up? In uh, just over 1,200 theaters. The movie maintained its number one spot for a full 12 weeks and remained in the top 10 until June of the following year. It became the highest grossing film of 1990 and earned a Guinness World Record as the highest grossing live action comedy ever domestically, pulling in $285.7 million in the U.S. Held on to that title for 27 years until the Chinese blockbuster Never Say Die knocked it out of the top spot in 2017. In his book, Who Killed Hollywood and other essays, the Oscar-winning screenwriter William Goldman admitted that the unexpected success of Home Alone contributed a new phrase to the Hollywood lexicon, to be home aloneed, meaning the other films suffered at the box office because of Home Alone's long and successful run. Goldman wrote, More than one executive said to me, my picture did 40, but it would have done 50 if it hadn't have been home aloneed. Home Alone (laughs) pulled in about 500 million dollars worldwide making it the third highest grossing movie globally ever at the time although the title was changed for certain foreign markets movies called mom i missed the plane in italy in brazil it's called they forgot about me in argentina it's oh the poor angel (laughs) okay Showings of Home Alone have become a Christmas tradition in Poland, where it has aired on national television since the early 1990s, when it was one of the first Western movies to be shown after communist rule. In 2010, a Polish television network did not include the film in its Christmas schedule, which was met with a protest of over 90,000 people on Facebook, and their decision was immediately reversed. In 2011, more than 5 million people tuned in to watch it making it the most watched show to air during that season. 
The movie's cinematographer, Julio Macat, whose son you are a classmate of. Yeah, Max Macat. Shouts to Max Macat. Uh, told Chicago Magazine, being foreign, I can tell you Home Alone has an international theme. Other countries, especially poorer countries with less means, have to be more resourceful. So seeing a little kid who is resourceful and can protect his home resonated with everybody, especially kids who have nothing, who put together a toy from sticks and stones. I think that's why everybody responded to it, because the theme is empowering kids. A lot of people also forget, myself included, that the film was nominated for two Oscars for the score by John Williams, who was brought in at the last minute. If you see an early poster for Home Alone, the credits read music by Bruce Broughton, who did the score for another Chris Columbus movie, Young Sherlock Holmes. But as they were getting closer to finishing the film, they got a call from Bruce saying that he was under deadline to finish his score for The Rescuers Down Under, and he couldn't do Home Alone. Woof. Mm. So they were left without a composer. Columbus knew Steven Spielberg through writing The Goonies for him, and John Williams is Spielberg's number one composer through the years. So that is how Williams came on. Do you think they have friendship bracelets? <laughs> oh, what's your favorite Williams score? <sighs> oh, man. I, I mean, Jurassic Park is like... It's a good one. Pretty up there for me, yeah. Yeah. It's got to be Star Wars. Uh, well, yeah. Because it's just... Uh, Jurassic Park has one. Most of the other ones have the one theme. Star Wars has like four... Right instantly identifiable bangers you that's know true i'm like really trying to think what else indiana jones is pretty good too oh yeah i mean i yeah yeah that's a pretty iconic one that uh, that's another one that has two too because there's the main and then there's the like creepy the like the, the oh, like yeah. mystery intrigue uh cue uh okay we're not going to talk about the sequels to this uh this movie uh home alone 2 is good home alone 3 is bad there was a fourth one <laughs> yeah i don't it was home sweet home alone just some now getting streamer. word that there yeah. was a fourth home alone movie. I, I, yeah made. i don't i don't understand it it was some kind of streamer thing okay wait home alone 4 there, there is a home alone 4 that was that has french stewart in it oh god there's been six of these Seven? Something called Home Alone Holiday, the Holiday Heist. I have no idea what that is. The villains are Malcolm McDowell and Debbie Mazar. I mean, that kind of seems cool. <laughs> Just Malcolm McDowell. Then there's Preceded by Home Alone 4, which is the aforementioned French Stewart Missy Pyle one. And yes, Home Alone 3 starring Alex D. Linz. Scarlett Johansson plays his older sister. How about that? One idea that uh, they had before embarking on this undistinguished string of spinoffs was to uh, have uh, Marv star as a uh, have his own series, probably because they couldn't get Pesci back for more than more than two. Uh, Bushwhack, the nineteen ninety five Daniel Stern movie, began life as a potential Marv spinoff, with Marv being framed for murder after giving up his life of crime. This was eventually tweaked to be uh, a delivery guy on the run, also after being framed for murder. Chris Columbus has been asked what he thought of a rebooted Home Alone, uh, which he says would not be a good idea. <laughs> Talking to Entertainment Weekly, he said, I think 33-year-old Kevin McAllister inherited the home from his parents, and he's living there with his own precocious son, and Harry and Marv are sort of hanging out, still seething with revenge. They want to get back into that house, and they want to get Kevin's kid. That's sort of my little fantasy. 
He wants Taken. He wants to pitch ta- <laughs> Taken. <laughs> <With a, laughs> that's actually kind of funny. Yeah. Now, now listen to me. Get under the couch. I'm going to be Taken. <laughs> that's my Liam Neeson. <laughs> can, can you Liam Neeson telling people to uh, keep the change? You filthy animals. <laughs> keep the change. You filthy animal. <laughs> Poor Liam Neeson. That man's been beat up enough by life. We don't have to. We don't have to dogpile on him. Uh, it's a tribute. It's a loving tribute. Well, speaking of loving tributes, given Macaulay Culkin's harrowing childhood, I think we should check in with him and see how he feels about this film that could be viewed alternately as the best thing or the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And I'm delighted to report that he seems to have fond memories of it, or at least a fondness for his on-screen mom. During a 2015 interview on Watch What Happens Live, Catherine O'Hara told Andy Cohen that she and Culkin had bumped into one another recently at an art event. She said, I haven't seen him for years and years, but I saw him two years ago at a Martin Mall art opening. Hmm. No, I'm not going to... Moving on. Leave that one alone. (laughs) And he was coming out, and he went, Mommy! And I said, Baby! (laughs) And they took pictures, which unfortunately I don't think have surfaced, but I love that. Uh, Macaulay Culkin does not watch this movie alone, Norma Desmond style. Uh, (laughs) However, he said during his Ellen DeGeneres appearance in 2018, I can't watch it in the same way that other people do. He just remembers like what was happening on the set that day. And, and, you know, he says he remembers like hiding a can of Pepsi behind the couch before doing a take and things like that, like as opposed to actually following the narrative plot of the movie. But he does make an exception when it comes to watching Home Alone. He says, you get like a new girlfriend and she's flipping through the channels and then there's Home Alone and she's like, eh, you want to watch it? He's talking to The Tonight Show, also in 2018. I've indulged that and most of the time I'm just muttering lines under my breath. But hey, whatever gets her motor running, I guess. That's as good a place as any to end our exploration of Full House. (laughs) It's not Full House, Jordan. (laughs) I'm sundowning. Someone get someone get grandpa home. Uh, Well, folks, thank you for listening. I'm going to do it right. No, we're going to leave that in there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks. (laughs) Sorry. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Rundtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Rundtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.